Welcome to the official podcast of Customer and Partner Experience. We'll be joined by Tony Colon and special guests to discuss the latest trends in technology, explore the humanity behind innovation, and discover something new along the way. I'm Stephen Spire. I'm Megan Watson. And this is What, what Makes, Makes You Tech. Tech. On today's show, we'll be talking with Marcy Pollock, who is the head of CX Cloud Transformation for the Customer and Partner Experience Organization. Her team is on a mission to cultivate the culture and conditions for enterprise agility. Marcy's team ignites agility, fosters alignment, and harmonizes how CPX delivers value to customers. Her multidisciplinary team creates value through precision and delivery while amplifying our capacities as an agile organization. Marcy's breadth of experience in education, digital experience, and technology taught her firsthand what leads transformation to succeed or fail. In two years, the organization has adopted agile mindsets and practices, enabling them to move from yearly plus to weekly releases. Marcy is a dedicated mentor and sponsor, both inside and outside of Cisco. She gives back to organizations like Bright Pink and Immernin Angels, supporting people at risk for or impacted by cancer. Marcy, welcome to the podcast. Grateful to have you. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I'm excited to be here. So the first question that I want to ask is, we ask all of our first-time guests this, is what makes you tech? Great question. Uh, What makes me tech is probably a combination of professional and life experiences. Uh, I, I can share a little bit about my untraditional path to getting to technology. Uh, When I started my career over 20 years ago, I was a horse trainer. It was what I dreamed of as a kid. Uh, I went to school for it. I rounded out the equine experience with business experience just to set myself up for success. But horses was what I envisioned for my entire life and my entire career. And I was good at it and I loved it. Uh, But I got to a moment in my career where I felt like my professional goals and my personal goals could never intersect. So I had to make a choice (laughs) and the choice was, do I double down on the horse industry or do I make some pivots knowing that there will always be horses to ride, Um, but life can pass you by as Ferris Bueller once said. And so I made the opportunity and the choice to vote in favor of my life and and know I'd always have horses. And that has held true for the last 20 something years. Um, So I pivoted out of the equine industry and I worked in education um, for four or five years. Um, But there was something about education that didn't fulfill me. In the horse industry, I was solving new problems literally on a 30 to 45 minute increment every day for 10 or 12 or more hours a day. And so that really sparked a level of curiosity and interest and energy every day when I showed up to work, I knew it was going to be different. And while education was fulfilling for different reasons, it ultimately became a a situation where I could always work more, (laughs) but... I was really struggling to find um, something that sparked my curiosity, that motivated me and energized me in the same way that training horses and training riders did. And so uh, a series of unfortunate catalysts and changes in the industry and changes in the business actually forced me to rethink uh, what I wanted to do. And as I thought about what are the things I'm great at, working with people, solving complex problems, um, and learning... And where are the areas that will continuously spark my curiosity? Digital and technology was something that had an interesting gravitational pull for somebody who didn't have much experience there. But the thing Mm -hmm. that I knew about technology was by the time I learned everything there would be to learn, I would be out of date. And so I knew that 
no matter what I embarked on in a in the digital space or in the technology space, I was going to be forced to always be learning. And so that's what brought me to the tech industry. Awesome. And I think it's no secret that when people hear Marcy, they automatically think of agile and agile methodology <laughs> and the agile transformation that we are going through, been through. So can you talk a little bit, how did you first become introduced to agile and what drove you to want it, to make it your expertise? I don't think it was ever a choice. It was just, you know, how I grew up in digital and technology. So I entered the world of digital and digital experience and digital strategy at this moment in time in the world where companies, enterprises, um, users were all starting to acclimate to this new world where, you know, digital experiences were ubiquitous without even maybe even us realizing it. You know, we could order things on Amazon was just starting to happen um, more and more. Um, companies were putting focus on how do we represent ourselves in the digital space. And, um, and, and at the same time, we were seeing the rise of social media. I mean, this was back in the early 2000s. <laughs> Um, but we were seeing the rise of social media. Um, I remember, you know, coworkers getting their first iPhone and thinking how revolutionary that was going to be. It was the coolest. Um, it was the coolest. Oh my what gosh! It just changed somebody, everything. Somebody walked into the the startup I worked. At. I was at an education startup, and she goes, "I waited in line for this," and she held up the the very very first iPhone and. Like all 15 of us in the office sort of huddled around and just ooed and odd. And anyways, you know, so this was at a moment in time where social and mobile were starting to become more and more um, integrated into our lives. And when I made my first sort of step into the digital, you know, world um, through my job, in my time at that first job uh, at a, a global digital agency, I had the opportunity to work on work that touched every stage of the customer and consumer journey at every digital touch point that was relevant during that time. And so our customers, I had customers who were Fortune 500, Fortune 100, Fortune 50, <laughs> and they all wanted to rethink and change how they interacted with their customers, their fan bases, um, you know, brand, brand ambassadors and things like that. And so you know, over the course of the work, doing everything from campaigns to digital strategy to building um, digital platforms for customers, we had to figure out <laughs> how do we keep pace with the business, with the market, and find ways to deliver um, in more innovative ways. And at the time, this was 2009, 2010, nobody was talking about Agile or Scrum. It was just, how can we find ways to work in a more integrated way with cross-functional teams? How do we bring our customers who, when I look back, they were product owners, how do we bring our customers into the room to help us make decisions faster? And so that was how I learned how to deliver digital experiences, how I learned to deliver in technology. And it just was part of how I worked. I didn't really ever make a choice of like, well, this is going to be my career. Um, <laughs> and so as I made my way through, you know, that growth and development and ultimately transitioned from, you know, the agency world more into sort of big technology, that was just how teams were starting to work. And so it was a natural fit. And as I moved out of the agency space and into technology, one of the things I was brought into my, you know, that next job to do was to help bridge understanding between, you know, implementation and technology teams and engineers with design. Because again, 
this notion of experience layering into, you know, what makes technology more powerful <laughs> was something that was still less understood than it is even now, five, six, seven, eight years later. And so um, using working together cross-functionally to make decisions and design and build experiences actually helped bridge that gap in understanding between design teams and technology teams and product teams and customer teams. And so it wasn't necessarily a choice. It was just sort of how I worked. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot that the change is a necessity of the environment around us, right? Especially you see this very much in technology where everything moves so fast. And if you blink, you'll miss it. You'll miss the boat and you're, it's now too late for you, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like I'm right with you that you see what needs to happen and lucky for you, you decided, okay, let's do it and not let's what, let us pass us by. Let's keep doing things the way that we've done. And that's needed in an environment such as this. So can you talk maybe to some of the I don't know, successes, success stories that you've seen, like the ways that you've seen as you've made that change and made that switch and operated that way, the benefit of being able to do that? Sure. Um, you know, so I think in the early days, <laughs> in my early days of working in this way, you know, I had a lot of things to my benefit that you can't teach and how to work with people, how to read people, how to sort of understand and adapt my style. And that came from sitting on the back of a thousand pound prey animal and having to form a partnership. So that experience as a horse trainer has suited me well in many other areas of my life. Um, but I think the other thing that, that working this way, you know, proved as an early success, both personally, as well as I think for the teams, I hope for the teams that I have worked with over the course of my career is it, it opens the door for curiosity and for learning and, dare I even say vulnerability. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. When I came into the agency world, when I interviewed for that first project management job, <laughs> they looked at my resume and they looked at me and they looked at my resume and they looked at me again <laughs> and just sat there puzzled in the room. And they said, you were a horse trainer and you worked in education. Why would you be a good project manager? And I said, well, I bring the things you can't teach. I can learn any process. I can learn any tool. Um, but if somebody doesn't know how to build trust, if somebody doesn't know how to learn, if somebody doesn't have great chemistry with people, you can't force that. So I said, I bring that and I can show you all the proof points. And, and, and I came into it with this attitude of, I'm just going to have to learn a lot of new stuff. I have to learn Microsoft project. We can all chuckle about that now. <laughs> Later it became, I have to learn Jira. I have to learn, you know, um, I have to learn about Adobe. I have to learn about mobile. I have to learn about all these new things. And so as I came together to work with these teams and to deliver what, what at the time were sort of groundbreaking experiences for different customers, opening the door for people to say, I don't understand that very much. Can we work through it as a team and solve it? Um, and and it just became the way how we worked, how we defined things, how we solved problems, and how we broke down things that were really complex so we could make decisions about it. And personally for me, and I've heard this over the course of now the last 15 years or so, that really affected people because there was this perception that, well, we worked for this big global agency and we won awards and we had amazing clients that you were probably supposed to know everything. 
And I just walked in there day one going, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> and so I think that that was just an early win. And I think it also instilled the confidence for me personally that I can approach things like this in my career with that vulnerability of, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand it? I don't know how to do this. Can you show me what's worked for you? And so personally for me, that's been an amazing way to embark on a pretty significant set of career pivots over the last five to seven years. And I think, you know, what I hear time and again from people I've worked with early on in my career and even people that I work with now, having that model for curiosity, for trust, I trust you enough to tell you what I don't know, is, is kind of setting the bar <laughs> and setting the stage and culture for what it takes for people to feel empowered and to work in, in, in a sort of agile, and I'm using air quotes, way, because without trust, without empowerment, these ways of working don't work. And, and all of that is, is, is to say, it's less about the thing we made. It's less about the work we delivered and more about the conditions that we create amongst our peers and our teams to help them be successful. And really, when I think about my mission and my charter and that of my team and collectively within our group here at Cisco, it is about creating the culture and the conditions where teams and the organization can thrive and do their best work. So hopefully that helps to tie it all back around. <laughs> yeah, I think the key word that you said there is culture, right? Because that's it's a constant thing. It's not just a practice. It's a way of thinking. And if you create a culture, which is to say that you're creating an environment around someone that they're always thinking in that way to put themselves into a vulnerable space, space to say, I don't know the answer to this question. Let me ask, let me learn, let me develop, let us grow together is a total 180 compared to the way that it has typically been done or the way that it's perceived to have typically been done. Whereas I know everything mm -hmm. come to me and I can fix the problem, even though we all know that the, the guys didn't know everything. Right. But like, that's that, but that's the way that it was. That's the way that it was. And we're trying to change that. It's trying to build this environment around us to say, let's be vulnerable together. And those create good teams that do amazing work. And so when you think back to prior experience, whether it be at Salesforce or the agencies before that, what do you think is missing here at Cisco that may be prohibiting us from being fully agile and fully successfully completing this transformation that we've been working towards the past few years? I love how you asked that. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to respond to that. And I don't want you to take that as a critique, but it's, we're not ever done. And like, you know, again, in quotes, being agile isn't a flip of a switch where one day we woke up and we've all taken a training and all of a sudden we think differently and we work differently. It really is a journey and it's not linear. <laughs> and oftentimes it feels really difficult and it's hard to look back and say, have we made any progress here? Um, and so I would actually say there's nothing missing here at Cisco. Um, there's nothing missing here within the customer and partner experience group. It really is just about 
how we have embarked on the journey. And I think, you know, one of the things that that set us off to be successful two and a half years ago when I first joined um, and has consistently helped support support our goals is that we had a really clear why. Why do we want to change how we work? Why do we want to think differently about how we interact together in our work? Um, what do we what do we hope to get out of this? Cisco, as we've talked about, and I think you talk about a lot on this podcast, undertook a pretty significant transformation. And so, you know, when we think about the entire company shifting, you know, from hardware to services and software led, when we talk about talk about the entire business model transformation that had to support that in all areas of the business. And then you think about the role that customer and partner experience plays in supporting that transition. If we change the way the business, um, what what the business objectives are at the end of the day, what do we lead with? How do we want customers to interact with us? Um, if we change everything on the back end to drive that different business model, the things we give to our customers, <laughs> the way we think about value to our customers also has to change. And so customer and partner experience, changing how we work so we can deliver value on a more predictable cadence so that we can be even more oriented towards our customers and what they need and our partners and what they need, the why was very clear. And I think oftentimes when we think about why transformations don't work <laughs> and some even fail gloriously, it's because we're missing that why and we lack the leadership vision and support for that. And within the customer and partner experience team, that 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 why has never changed. And our leadership's support for that has never faltered, despite the challenges, despite the hurdles. And so as a broader you know, organization that is globally distributed, that has undertaken transformation leading into a global pandemic, <laughs> I would say, truly, we're not missing anything. We just have to remind ourselves to be patient. And occasionally, um, we have to look back to see how far we've come. And if we look back at the last two and a half years, where we've come is pretty phenomenal. Right. So take me through. So you come on to Cisco in this role. Take us behind the curtain. What does that conversation look like? How do you discern, like, you kind of know the direction we want to head, but you don't know the specifics of what we need to change to get there, right? So how do you come to a conclusion with you and the leadership team that these are the issues that we need to address or these are the things that we want to instill because they're not, they don't exist? How do you even come up with where that starting point is? Sure. Uh, well, so luckily, I, got, I was really lucky because some of that was underway. I jumped on a, a moving train. I think from a leadership perspective, you know, our organization, and if I can name Tony, Tony knew, <laughs> you know, that he needed somebody to come from outside and really dive into what is the experience of our employees today? What is the experience we deliver to customers and what is it like to get there? And at that point, at least in the context of his remit and his charter, we hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> and many had failed trying. And so he knew already that it was going to be important to get a neutral outside perspective to really dive in 
to travel the world while we still could. And I can't imagine doing that, you know, in a pandemic. It's truly difficult. And for organizations trying to start on this, that's a whole other podcast. But, um, you know, we had that luxury of being able to truly travel the world, to sit with the teams, to sit next to the teams, to watch the teams, to hear from them and understand what's happening. What's it like to work at Cisco in this group right now? And what's holding you back? How do we unlock you? And so I think over the course of three months, we we conducted about 170 interviews. <laughs> we conducted multiple workshops at every one of the main sites um, where our team resided at that time. So Krakow wasn't you know officially a site at that time, but had it been, I would have been super excited to go to Krakow. Um, but we really traveled to all the sites to to have conversations, to have real conversations and hard conversations about how do we unlock the organization? How do we create space and place for safety, trust, and empowerment? What's not working in terms of just our rituals, how we plan, how we orchestrate, how we build things? <laughs> how do we have feedback on the things that we build? So we really tried to take a pretty comprehensive and 360 look at all of those dimensions. And once we had completed that, again, over the course of a few months and many miles on airplanes and things like that, we brought um, a cross-section of the organization together. I think it was about 65 people in a room uh, in San Jose, and we played back everything we heard. Essentially, it was just reflecting the mirror. Here's what we observed. Here's what we heard. Here's what we saw. And what do you all think about it? And what do you want to do about it? And we conducted a workshop over the course of a couple of days really to let that cross-section of the group sit with <laughs> how are things today? How is it affecting our teams? And then what do we want to do about it? And pulling that cross-section of people together from various levels, from every function, um, from all geographies together to really co-create, okay, if this is where we want to go, where's, what's the path we want to take to get somewhere else? And what does that North Star look like? And so that's what we did. <laughs> we brought the whole organization um, with us to understand where we are and to put a stake in the ground on the journey we wanted to take. What's the hill we want to climb together? And then we crafted the plan. And then, you know, I, in my time in the agency world, in my time at Salesforce, you know, there were a lot of things I saw that I learned from both really good things and really, you know, challenging things. And one of the more challenging things that I saw, I don't know how many multi-million dollar roadmaps my teams and I delivered for really big companies trying to really transform their, their customer experience, their culture, their technology, you know, digital transformation. A lot of money is spent on really expensive you know, PowerPoints at the end of the day. That's the artifact where these roadmaps and plans live. Always. Right? <laughs> and when delivering on the promise of that PowerPoint resides with one person or even one team, it's doomed to fail almost every time. And so I throw a lot of weird things on the wall to see if they stick. <laughs> and, you know, my probably wildest and craziest idea was, you know, what if we try to execute on this transformation plan that was multiple years, had multiple tracks? What if we tried to execute on this plan by pushing as much of it as possible out to the team? And so that's what we did. And in doing that, we, we accomplished a few things. 
Um, first and foremost, it created a safe space for learning <laughs> because we kind of approached it as a big wild experiment. What if we delivered on our agile transformation goals via an agile program? So we'll teach you how to prioritize. We'll teach you how to create um, epics and features and stories. And what does it mean when they're ready to work on? And what does it mean when they're done? How do we know we've achieved the thing? Um, and what does it mean to bring visibility of the work we did, whether we did what we thought we were going to do or whether we missed the mark? We still showed what we did every single time. And so people had space to show up and sort of adopt these roles outside of their day job. <laughs> and again, it, it created safe space for learning. It helped establish empathy cross-functionally in the team for the people who actually have to perform these jobs as their day job. And it also, through that learning, through building that empathy, people took that learning into their day job and it created this like amazing ripple effect. And so when you talk about creating culture change and behavior change, it was really this combination of having sp safe spaces um, being able to try new things and sometimes be really successful and sometimes to fail gloriously, um, and being able to connect it in real time to, this is what I'm being paid to do in my day to day. So how do I apply these things in a new context? So it was really powerful. Um, and the one thing I'll say is, you know, we talk about delivering on the transformation roadmap, you know, we weren't building software to drive change. <laughs> we weren't always building things you could touch and see and, you know, deliver. And I'm using air quotes. Sometimes we were, we were crafting new ways of working and like writing it down. We, we made a whole library of playbooks for, Hey, in an ideal state, this is what these practices could look like. And here's who's involved and what's expected in these interactions and these rituals and literally step-by-step, step, how do you do these things? Sometimes the outcomes of delivering on the roadmap were training. How do we how do we embed learning new skills into the rhythm of working in this group? Uh, and other times it was defining new roles and setting new roles and new people up in the organization to be successful. So we shipped, and I'm using air quotes, and we demoed um, things that were wildly different from what you might think of when you think of a software development organization building things. And so hopefully that starts to like open the door to that pathway of, of how did we now apply these things and take it back into our organization to truly start to really make, how to, to truly um, drive and support behavior change, mindset change, um, and all the practices, the methodologies, you know, the tooling, the automation, all that stuff came. <laughs> but if we weren't mentally prepared if the agreements of how we show up together weren't somewhat established, we wouldn't have been ready for all that other stuff when it came. And stuff is a technical term. <laughs> we use it all the time. <laughs> all the time. So speaking of wild, crazy ideas and paving these pathways, how did you come to the decision to leave Salesforce and that familiarity and, and coming into new territory at Cisco where you knew kind of we were going to flip it, flip it upside down and change, you know, what historically people have been used to for so many years. And did you have any reservations when making that decision? Um, I didn't have reservations. Um, 
I knew that I was coming into a team and an organization that for the most part wanted and, and knew they needed to change. Um, and, and that's an important first step. Um, Salesforce was like a masterclass <laughs> in growth and learning and trying on different hats. And I felt like everything I learned there um, when it came to cultural change, behavior change, change management, um, trying new things, um, you know, leading through influence and not authority, I felt like this was a logical progression of all of the experiences that I had had at Salesforce. And so knowing that I was coming into a team um, with people I could trust, um, knowing that that why was very clear. And honestly, like the idea of, of leading what I, what I would call a once in a career transformation. And some of that's just because I don't know that I have it in me to do this twice. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard work. It's hard work. Um, I just thought like, if I don't try this, I might look back and regret it. Like, I'm not going to regret taking a bold step if I tie it even back to some of our own values and principles of the company. I won't regret trying something new where I know I'll have support and and some buy-in and, and, and the organization, whether they knew it or not, they needed it and wanted it in, in many ways. Um, so it wasn't a super hard decision. Um, every now and then, I think I, I question if I'll be sane by the end of it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think... I, I, I think this has been, again, something, if I think about the person who graduated college to be a horse trainer, who lived on a 45-acre farm in rural Maryland, and at the time, an 85-year-old cottage with a wood-burning stove for heat and was happy, to be in a position from coming from there and, and being where I am today, it's just, I'm like so proud to look back and one, just be grateful for the opportunities I've had for the sponsors and the mentors that I've had who've helped make this possible. And if I didn't try it again, I would look back on that and probably be pretty, pretty upset with myself in some number of years later. So what advice then would you give someone that is considering thinking about where they want to go or what they want to do? Is it worth them to step out and do something bold and something that they don't know about? Or is, you know, the devil that you know is better than the devil you don't is what the saying is, but yeah, that doesn't include a lot of room for growth, it seems, right? So what advice would you give to somebody kind of maybe in that similar situation? What a neat question. Um, I, get, I get asked for advice a lot. And, you know, I think some people are going to be very comfortable with the devil they know, and it's hard to change their minds. But I think at the end of the day, um, understanding what's your superpower and having a point of view on how do you want to leverage it? What do you want to do with it? Um, that often is a better point of inflection and reflection for people looking for advice than, well, this is what worked for me, so try it. You know what I mean? So really thinking about what do I want to do with the things that I'm great at and that bring me some sort of satisfaction or happiness or joy um, is oftentimes where I start. And 
you know, the other thing, when people have come into Cisco, <laughs> they've already made that leap, you know, to come here or anywhere else where I've, I've had direct responsibility for managing employees. And my very first one-on-one -on -one with a new employee, one of the first questions that I ask is what is the experience that you want to have? Not what's your five-year plan, not what's your three-year plan, or what do you want to look back on in a year and say you did, but truly what are the experiences that you want to have in your work <laughs> so that I can best support and enable and create a pathway for those experiences. And so that question, what experiences do you want to have, um, often help people come to their own conclusion versus me giving advice of this has worked for you, or this has worked for me, it'll work for you. And so that's the advice I would give people. Um, know your superpower and claim it <laughs> and really do the, the deep work and the thinking of what kinds of experiences do I want to have? And is the devil I know going to give me those experiences? Cool. No harm, no foul. You should stay there. Is the devil I don't know maybe going to offer me a different way to have this experience or a totally different experience altogether? Okay, well, now let's think about how do we map those desires to places, people, teams who can help create those experiences. Are you, Marcy, ready for some rapid fire? I was born ready. All right. So this one uh, is interesting for me, and I just want to do it because I've made some terrible fashion choices in my life. I am rocking a mustache right now. This is one of the worst things I've ever done, by the way. Uh, what is the worst fashion choice you have ever made? The worst fashion choice I've ever made. So when I was younger, so I've worn glasses or contacts since I was 18 months old. And uh, I'd say for a solid 15 years in my childhood and teenage life, uh, I had these glasses that were fire engine red in various shapes and <laughs> various sizes. Well, multiple glasses we're talking, not oh, just yeah, one. Yeah. Yes. From the time I was very young, I had these like, <laughs> bright red glasses. And sometimes I look at pictures with an endearing um, level of shame that not only that I selected it, but that many people in my life let me leave the house that way. <laughs> <laughs> Enablers. Yeah. When you combine it with the bangs of the, the late 80s, um, that's a whole other, that's a different podcast as well. <laughs> One of my uh, my friends from kindergarten, today's actually her 30th birthday, and so I saw a picture of us in kindergarten in the bangs. I don't know what oh. my mom was thinking. <laughs> Cruel. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay, what is one book that you'll recommend to anybody? I am a huge, I'm a huge fan of Adam Grant. Um, pretty much anybody who's ever had a conversation with me knows this. And I, I recommend give and take a lot um, because it, it, again, I'm really big on introspection and thinking about myself and how do I show up and how do I read others and how do I best understand where others are coming from? So give and take is the one that I will always recommend um, just because it applies everywhere outside of work. The other thing, if I can add to um, Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek is a book that I send every new manager on my team because I want to instill that as a value. <laughs> um, and people who have the privilege and responsibility to lead and develop teams. So 
I cheated. I gave you two. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. We'll forgive we'll you. We'll take it. Yes. Yes. What is the number one item on your bucket list? <laughs> um, so uh, I mentioned at the beginning, I've been riding horses for well over 30 years. Um, I've trained, I've competed, um, I've cheered, now I've cheered on my daughter at her first horse show. Um, but there is a type of class that I have never competed in. <laughs> um, and, uh, that, that is my, my wildest dream. And that is, I want to have like the perfect horse and I got to want to go walk into, you know, a show ring and compete at the highest levels in a hunter derby. So a hunter derby is is a class that is judged on style of the horse and really how you present that horse. Um, and there are components of the way courses are designed for, for this type of competition that really focus on technique and athleticism. And it is like my wildest dream one day to have a horse that I can go compete in the hunter derbies at the highest levels and be competitive. Uh, and I often say to my husband, like, clock's a ticking. Like, I mean, I, I can't do this when I'm 80. So is this the kind of uh, stuff that we see in the Olympics? Is that what you're talking about here? No, that's show jumping. And I don't have the heart for that. Um, or <laughs> no, but it is definitely it's like inspired by, you know, fox hunting out in fields of England or the UK and and things like that. And really about. Um, again, just handiness, you know, horse and riders ability as a team to navigate, um, you know, obstacles with some grace and balance um, and style. Um, and I just love that the jumpers are about, can you go high and can you go fast and leave all the jumps up? But the hunters are really about technique and finesse and style. Uh, and I really, I it just, it's my wildest dream <laughs> to do that one day. Okay, one more fun one. We have, you know, the holidays coming up and lots of time off. So what's one movie that you'll never pass up no matter how many times you've seen it? The Breakfast Club. Classic. A classic. Mm -hmm. Breakfast Club. Every time. So this is the last thing that we want to we ask you and we'll wrap on this. Uh, so we've talked all about this transformation, talked about Agile, changing culture, changing people's mindsets, all of that kind of stuff. If you want the audience to walk away with one thing from this podcast, the most important aspect that we've talked about or that you would want to get across to them, what would that be? I'm going to end with a quote. Um, so I'm going to leave with the audience uh, a quote that I love from Margaret Mead, um, which says, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because indeed it's the only thing that ever has. And I think it adequately wraps up in a bow how we have achieved the transformation goals we have achieved so far. And I think also how we will continue to achieve uh, the work we've set out to do. Well, thank you, Marcy, for being a part of the podcast. We're excited to, to have you on. We're grateful for the work that you've been doing. And I'm sure that lots of other people in, in, in the org that have worked with you and worked with your team have, uh, have felt the same thing. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. This has been lots of fun.